Hi, people. This is Tony Carey from Rainbow, Planet P, and all kinds of other stuff over the last 50 years with you on the Follow Your Dream podcast with my good pal, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Randy Brecker, one of the greatest trumpet players of this generation. His work runs the gamut from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, where he was an original member, to the Brecker Brothers, the band that he formed with his brother Michael, to his work with a who's who of artists. I'll just mention one name, you'll know them. Clapton, Springsteen, Elton, Aretha, Tina, Bet, Chaka, Carly, and Jocko. How about that? And he's a six-time Grammy winner, too. But to me, more important than all of that stuff is the fact that Randy played on my first album that I recorded in 1994, which was a momentous event in my life. In the Songfest portion, which we will do in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, I've asked Randy to send to me a handful of his best works. We'll play a little bit. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guests. In this case, it was so simple. It's Child's Play, that song that I mentioned from my first album, recorded in 1994. So, Randy Brecker, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Well, thank you. I never quite thought of uh, the last name uh, artist that I played with. It's uh, quite interesting. It is impressive, I will tell you that. Okay, I want to pay you a compliment. I'm going to take you back to 1994. We're at East Side Sound in New York City, mm -hmm. and I'm recording my first album. I'm nervous, of course, and I have this song, Child's Play, that I wrote. It's not a complicated song. And the producer said to me, I think we need another instrument on this. I said, well, what do you think we need? He says, well, I think a trumpet would be great. I said, fantastic. Do you know somebody? He said, how about Randy Brecker? I said, you're kidding. You can get Randy Brecker to do this? He said, yeah, I think I can get Randy. Next day, in walks Randy Brecker. And you take your trumpet out of the case. You listen to the song one time. I have no chart for you, nothing. And you play the song through. Melody, solo, melody again. You hit it perfectly. You put the trumpet back in the case, and you walked out. It was maybe 10, 15 <laughs> minutes, the whole thing. But you did it perfect. Well, I, I somehow have, I would say, a gift. But I, I, I maintain that ability from just playing by ear every night. I put on records that I haven't heard before and see how far I get. And if I miss something, then I kind of peek at, try to figure out what I couldn't hear. 
fact, I just did a gig, a couple gigs like that, uh, where no music. I had never heard what they were going to do. One was a, a gig with my daughter. She had no charts. I just had to kind of get on stage and hope uh, it was in my key, so to speak. But I usually do pretty well with it, I have to say, from just kind of working on my my ears and hearing music. It's an amazing talent. Now, you got started. Your father was a musician, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was a very fine composer, lyricist, songwriter, and pianist. He was a lawyer by trade, but music really came first. He did all the working on ships, and he played around Philadelphia and had a lot of jam sessions at our house with some really great musicians. So I just grew up with all this. So did he play on weekends? Did he do, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that? Or, you know, what did he do with his music? Well, I, I can't recall him doing weddings. He would play in the lobby. They'd pay him to play in the lobby of our where he lived. It, it was partially apartments and partially a hotel. So he'd play there on weekends. And he did, when he was younger, play around Philly and had uh, jam sessions at the house. They, they became pretty well known where people just came over and played, including one of my idols, the great John Hendricks, spent... The weekend at our house, I was about 12 years old, so I got to play with him, and I knew all of his records, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. So it was a big thrill for me, and we stayed in touch. You know, the rest of his life, 50 years later, I remember seeing him at the Blue Note. He was in his 80s, and he actually asked about if Dad had recorded that day. He pointed at me and said, you know, that was history. That was history right there. Wow. So, you know, I had a pretty wild upbringing with music jazz came first were you pushed into music did your father you know say this is what we want you and your brother to do or how did that come about well we got kind of mixed messages because of his life his parents were immigrants and he grew up in a struggling family and he was worried about the lifestyle of being a musician but you know it was in our blood man i tried doing other things i i went to school at Indiana University at the music school, but I was also in communications. They had a great program there. I thought maybe uh, work behind the scenes in radio and television or journalism or stuff like that. But I always was drawn back to music. And it was the same story with my brother and sister, who was a fine classical pianist and harpist and composer in her own right, Emily Brecker. All right. And were you always a trumpet player or did you gravitate to the trumpet? No, I was always a trumpet player from age eight. And that's partially because Clifford Brown, the wonderful trumpet player, was alive and well in Philly until he was sadly killed in that automobile accident in 1956. But Dad had all his records, and he was the talk of the town. I never got to hear him, sadly, live. But he was on everybody's lips because he was they, their home base was basically in Philly. His uh, being from Wilmington and, and the Max Roach... Clifford Group was really based in Philly. They played there all the time. I remember listening to a Clifford Brown playing one of his beautiful ballads, and my dad grabbed me by my shirt and said, Randy, trumpet's the greatest jazz instrument. And in my little school in suburban Philadelphia, they only had trumpets or clarinets. As an eight-year-old, trombone looked like a little more fun, you know, with the slide, but they didn't have one. <laughs> So I, I I took the trumpet right away, eight years old. And conversely, my brother didn't want to play the same instrument. So as he put it, he got stuck with the clarinet. But uh, <laughs> he had a good 
background. We both studied with people from the Philadelphia Orchestra, and that gave him a great background in woodwinds. And I had a great trumpet teacher, Sigmund Herring, whose books are still available. They're still uh, uh, well-known pedagogical uh, trumpet books. So we had a good upbringing. You know, I've said on the podcast, I started out on trumpet as well, because my father was an amateur trumpet player. Ah. And I still remember that first book, the Arbenz book. Yeah, well, that's the book still. That's the book, right? Yeah, sure is. Man, oh, man. But, you know, at eight or 10 or whatever, you're listening to jazz. And I mean, it's so much more sophisticated than what eight or 10 year olds are listening to. I just take my hat off to you that you could get into it at that age. Yeah, well, I loved it. It was something about the sound. You know, I didn't know anything about the mechanics behind it. But, man, I love Chet Baker. I love West Coast jazz. Dad had all Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker records. Miles Davis, the first one I remember listening to was his first record on Columbia. And I started to play along with it. Uh, it's called Round About Midnight, where he does round Monk's Round Midnight. And I tried to imitate him, uh, the way he phrased the melody. And that was my introduction to John Coltrane, who was living in Philadelphia at the time. And uh, Did you ever meet him? You know, he was the one guy I never heard or met. My brother did hear him at a concert in Philadelphia. And I heard Miles many times at a place called the Red Hill Inn with a classic group with Cannonball and uh, Coltrane. But Coltrane, the times that we chose to go, never showed up. So I never really, <laughs> I never heard him live. And the year I moved to New York, Sadly, uh, three or four months later, he passed away, and uh, that was he was the only guy I missed. I would have loved to have met him and being able to experience his music live in front of me. But he was never he never showed on the nights I I was there with my dad as a kid. Well, you know, I studied bass when I switched over to bass, and my first bass teacher was a guy named Jimmy Garrison, oh. who was Coltrane's bass player. Yes, and uh, recently I just had. Ron Carter on the podcast, uh, who was in Miles, you know, mid 60s, famous quintet with Herbie Hancock and just a wonderful, wonderful quintet. And, you know, that music uh, will go on forever. It sure will. Yeah, that was it. We loved all those records. Then you made the transition, but you became a rock star, okay, with blood, sweat, and tears. Tell me how that happened. Well, you know, it was kind of happenstance. I had done a couple rehearsals at the Juilliard School of Music. They had a, a big band that wasn't officially part of the program, but there was a lot of rehearsal bands. There was a trumpet player named Jerry Weiss who invited me, even though I wasn't at Juilliard, he was studying there, to come up. They needed a trumpet player to fill out the big band. So I went up there two or three times and played. And uh, Jerry was the uh, other trumpet player in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and they were already set. But the the uh, second trumpet player decided not to go with the band. He had a steady teaching job, and he didn't want to leave his family. So that's how I got the gig. Jerry got me on the band. I was the last guy to join. And kind of at the last minute, just before they recorded their first record, Child is Father to the Man. And I stayed with them for close to a year, traveling all over the U.S. to promote the record. It was a brilliant record. I've had a couple of the guys from the band on the podcast. Jim Fielder, the bass player, who was a, an inspiration to me on the bass when I was learning it. Sure. Steve Katz was also on the podcast. 
But that band, I guess, really was Al Cooper's band, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his. It was his uh, central idea. Of course, he and Steve had been in the blues project together, but it was all his creative uh, ideas to put the whole thing together. And during a, a, a meeting, the 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 record had done reasonably well, but I think the record company and some of the other guys in the core band, we were the horn players were at that time hired a sideman other than Fred Lipsius, who was an integral part of the band, and he had done all the arrangements. And those guys had all knew each other for a long time. It was decided to add a lead singer by the name of David Clayton Thomas, who no one had ever heard of, and Al decided to quit. He didn't want to go for that. And at the same time, I had been getting calls from Horace Silver to join his band. And I actually didn't get to play improvise that much in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, maybe one solo a night, really. The rest was just read the horn parts. So I'll never forget this. The way the whole meeting down, went down, Al said, I quit. I You want to add a lead singer, you're going to have to find someone else. He left the meeting, and I thought, well, maybe this is the time I should bring it up and tell them I'm going to join Horace Silver. Because as I said to the uh, remaining members, you know, I don't think you guys will ever make it without Al. <laughs> and I uh, I followed my muse and I joined the great Horace Silver Quintet. It was a great mu move musically with the uh, young Billy Cobham on drums, fresh out of the army, the great Benny Maupin on tenor saxophone and wonderful bass player at the time was studying with Ron Carter, John B. Williams. He became a well-known West Coast and he was assistant music director on Arsenio Hall. Everyone had had successful careers but i split blood sweat and tears and the rest kind of was just history well it must have been an unbelievable experience hi everybody this is robert miller your host in 1994 i recorded my first album called miles behind it features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals like Child's Play. Plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. and Chick Corea's Sea Journey.
I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip, tight, and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. And, you know, this is a good segue into the Songfest portion of this interview, because the first thing I got teed up is the one song on Childless Father to the Man, that first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, which, by the way, had the craziest cover in the history of rock music. Yeah. All of you guys holding these little miniature versions of yourself on your knees. I want to hear about that. Okay, but we're playing now the Harry Nilsson song that you guys did without her that's got this great trumpet solo where you're doing a back and forth with, I assume, Freddie Lipsius on on saxophone. Tell me about that. Well, it just was uh, pretty much spontaneous and live. I was playing flugelhorn, actually, and uh, it still stands up. But, but both uh, what I played and uh, and what Freddie played, it just fits perfectly. And it was one of my first recording sessions. So I'm very proud. Still, I listened to it the other night just to make sure it still sounds like I remembered it did. And it's really quite a nice, first of all, it's a beautiful tune. And we sound really good on it. And it really helped my career because a lot of people heard us playing on that in New York. I got a very nice compliment from Bernie Glow, for instance. He had heard it. He was one of my idols in the recording studios. I still am in touch with his daughter. He told me firsthand how much he enjoyed my uh, playing on that record. Next thing I know, I'm in the recording studios with guys that I had grown up with. So this uh, one track had really a deep... Uh, connection and me getting started in studio work in new york well, i'm sure it was more than just the one track because your work with blood sweat and tears was just terrific but let's go to the next song now this one you gave me a song called the hottest man in town which was yeah. uh from into the sun i think it was a 1996 album by you as sure as your name is randy there's only one future for you you're gonna be the hottest man in town gonna be the hottest thing around gonna get a set of drumsticks as soon as you're five gonna learn to sing hot licks and master the jive gonna be the hottest man in town gonna be the hottest thing around gonna play a hot piano and all through your life even gonna play oboe and maybe hot five gonna love that old music even more than your wife gonna be the hottest thing in town is that your father doing the spoken word thing at the beginning? 
Yeah, that's why I thought, what the heck, you know? Uh, I talk about him all the time, but I don't think I've ever really spread the word how talented he was as a player. He wrote that tune for me, as he says, when I was two weeks old, completely forecast the future that I'd play a horn and be a musician. Uh, so that speaks for itself. And then I utilized uh, that tune to kind of segue into a, it's kind of a semi-classical little horn section that I wrote. And then it zooms in with some kind of cinematic sound effects uh, to me, lamenting my divorce, how I was treated. So it's all weirdly connected. And that whole record won a Grammy, whatever. I think it was 1997. And the thing still holds together. I listened to it the other night just to see how it would sound. But that is indeed Dad. And let me tell you this, too. When he recorded that, I was two weeks old. But the original recording is very scratchy. So I had him come up from Philly. He was my age at that time, 78 years old. Came with a briefcase, did one take in the studio, sang the tune, backed up, kind of like me on your session, and split. <laughs> so he was a real pro. He did one take, and that's that's what's on the record. It's, it still sounds great. And then we interspersed that with a part of the home recording. You can hear the uh, voice of my mother saying, you know, it's time for dinner or something like that. But the whole thing is really interesting. It holds together. And I sing on a thing called... Uh, well, it was part four of the suite on this record, which is called Into the Sun, that was recorded in 1997. So it's an interesting track. You bet. And uh, it's interesting to hear that definitely you and your father got the same DNA thing going if he was able to hit it on the first take, huh? Yeah, the first take, 78 years old, just went up to the piano, sang and played the tune perfectly, one take, packed up and waved goodbye because we were busy in the studio. What a guy. Well, you learned from him, I can tell you that. Yeah. Do you ever listen to some of the older albums and, and just cringe a little bit or say, gee, why did I think this was so great? Or does it never happen to you? Well, my memory is still pretty intact. So there, there maybe are, I, I can't say it never happens. I'll listen to old recordings of myself live and I'll say, oh, man, I remember that being a good night. Maybe it wasn't so good, you know, <laughs> or conversely, I might have a memory where a night I thought wasn't too good and it was great. So it works both ways. And it's interesting. I, at my age, I, I go back and listen to old stuff. I really enjoy doing that. I know you're always supposed to look ahead to the future, but I'm on so many records uh, and especially the Brecker Brothers records, they bring back so many fond memories and there's stuff on there. Sometimes I hear for the first time when I've been away from those records for, for you know, a length of time. Well, speaking of the Brecker Brothers, which is the band you did with your brother, you gave me a track, Above and Below. This is 1992 from the return of the Brecker Brothers.
It's a great track. Tell me about that one. Well, that one I put on there because it's in some textbooks and a lot of the uh, jazz aficionados and and, and jazz uh, pedagogues always mention that tune as uh, being one of my best. And it's interesting in the fact it's called Above and Below because I had an eight note, I guess you would call it a, a tone row that's utilized in the melody with a lot of ornamentation between the notes. Da, 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 da. That's halfway in tune. So those eight notes are in the melody. And then there's the vamp. And then before the solo starts, the soloist plays the eight notes. And then I took those eight notes and utilized them as the uh, roots of the blowing changes. Hence the title above, melody, and below, the roots of the blowing changes. So that's the story, and it all holds together really well. I think we got nominated for my solo on that one, if I remember. So it's a very good tune, and everybody just plays it great. It's not easy. No, it's not easy at all. And speaking of the names of some of your songs, that you gave me another one called The Sleaze Factor, which was yeah. also from Into the Sun. <laughs> you name it the sleaze factor tell me about that one at the time i was heavily into brazilian music and soul music and that uh features the great cafe on percussion and uh he's a big part of that tune but the title was dedicated to my record company at the time <laughs> so the sleaze factor just popped into my head and that's true of the music business in general. There's always the sleaze factor when it comes to the music business. Yeah, well, the business has changed a lot since you started, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it sure has. And Cafe is paying cuica, which is kind of like uh, the sound of an animal. You know, it's a, he's rubbing a cloth against a, 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 it looks like a drum, but there's a metal rod that you rub with a cloth, and it makes that uh, human-sounding thing that's featured on that tune so uh, it's another thing that's a little different and dave sanborn's also featured uh, on that his solo fabulous all right let's do the last one this is called hanging in the city from 2001 This is kind of a rap thing, isn't it? Yeah, I was I was one of the first rappers back in the day, man. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, from playing with Horace Silver 
as a hobby, he wrote lyrics. And I, I shouldn't say as a hobby because he wrote lyrics to all his tunes, and some of which, quite a, a, a few of which he, he utilized on his later records. And I had fun playing with words, too. Like I said, I was in communications. I always liked to write words or essays and my opinions about things. So I started writing lyrics, and that was one humorous one called Hanging in the City that I did a record called, uh, I gave myself an alternate name called Randroid. It was, uh, had to do with uh, the great saxophonist, Gary Bartz. We were playing together in Japan. And before the first set, he'd come over to me and look me in the eye and say, hey, tap me on the shoulder, say, Randroid, you in there yet? Look me in the eye and say, okay, you're not there yet. I'll I'll wait after we have a couple rounds. He'd wait for me. And by the end of the night, Randroid appeared. and he Randroid was there. Randroid appeared out of the darkness, so to speak. So I wrote a, a record with this character, Randroid, in mind, and I wrote the lyrics and sang several tunes. The whole album's called Hanging in the City, Songs of Rhyme, Reason, Romance, and Raunch. And it's one of the, my favorite records that I've done with uh, co-produced by my keyboard friend and wonderful programmer, George Whitty. And we had a lot of my friends, my brother played on it, Hiram Bullock, Will Lee, a lot of guys from Brecker Brothers bands. Uh, so that's one of my favorite of my records. It's definitely different, for sure. I mean, you've been all over the place. And let's talk about some of these great people that you've played with. Let me just mention one or two or three names, and you tell me what you did with them. Tell me about Springsteen. Well, Springsteen I remember because I knew him a little before we went in the studio. I knew a young lady who worked for him, and she introduced me to him. And I, I just remember kind of hanging out with him a couple nights uh, during the hanging out days, I forget what club it was, but eventually his manager called via the answering service, radio registry, and asked us to play myself, my brother, Dave Sanborn, and a trombonist by the name of Wayne Andre to play on 10th Avenue Freeze Out. did a duo kind of live in the studio, which was called Meeting Across the River, which was just me blowing Bruce and singing kind of duo style, which was very interesting. You stuff this in your pocket. It looked like you're carrying a friend. Remember, just don't smile. Change the shit. Tonight we got started. But 10th Avenue Freeze Out, there was empty sheet music on our music stands. He hadn't written a chart yet, and he wanted us to do it, which wasn't really part of the deal. And that tune was a little out of our wheelhouse, so to speak, since it was really rock and roll. You know, right. we were more fusion funk guys, jazz guys. Uh -huh. So we struggled through it, and we got about halfway 
through the tune and all of a sudden we hear in our headphones, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sounds terrible. That's not it. That's not it. And we met Miami Steve Van Zant for the first time. <laughs> he had just entered the studio. He hated what we were doing. So yeah, we had to start all over. He gave us some good ideas and we, we ended up uh, coming up with some good things with his help. Later, I've heard interviews, uh, him telling his side of the story. He had no idea, you know, who we were. He just thought we were some guys off the street. So he felt bad that he was rather uncouth about the whole thing. But this funny story, and we ended up with a good product because of him. Well, that final product is classic, of course. All right, tell me about Aretha. What'd you do with her? Well, those are a lot of recordings, many of which I don't remember specifically, other than one was at a and 799, and she was actually singing with the, the big band and orchestra, and she happened to be like three feet from me, so I could really hear her belting away. I had headphones on, of course, but that was a thrill. And I ended up, you know, this is a, a, another good story. I'll show you how busy it got. Other records, I don't quite remember which they are, but sometimes I wrote, arrangements. I didn't know where they would end up. During uh, the late 60s, 70s, I worked for Arif Martin, who was her producer. Right. And he was really busy. And he knew that I wrote, because he'd heard Brecker Brothers records, horn parts. So he took me aside once and said, listen, I'd like you to write some charts. He gave me a cassette. And instead of singers, whoever was playing guitar on the on the tracking sessions played the melodies. And as I left with all this uh, lead sheets and, and cassettes under my arm, I asked Arif, you know, it would help if I knew who the artist was going to be if I'm writing the charts. And he looked up to the ceiling. I swear this is true. He said, well, it might be Aretha. It might be uh, Carly Simon. Uh, it could be uh, Bette Midler. It might even be Ringo Starr. And I said, well, thanks for narrowing, narrowing <laughs> it down. And he said, Look, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out later. So in that case, there's a lot of stuff. I don't know where this stuff ended up. I've heard some Chaka things that I uh, that rang a bell. I said, oh, I wrote that chart. And Arif would give me credit whenever he could, but that's how busy it became, was just a track. We'll figure out who the artist is going to be later. That's amazing. But I played on quite a bit of Aretha's stuff, uh, uh, her records on Arista, too. They were also very good. How many sessions would you estimate you've done? Well, probably uh, I'm probably on close to three thousand CDs. Uh, there, there are discographies out that have uh, me at uh, twenty five hundred, but there's a lot unlisted. And and now you know I just got a little more organized during uh, pandemic. We do a lot of recording. My wife's a saxophonist, Ada Rovati, and also a great Pro Tools engineer. So I started to organize a lot of the sessions we've just done in our house during the pandemic and before, maybe the last two, three, four years. And that's close to 400 sessions in itself we've done in our basement. And they all have solos on them. So sometimes I give them something that I've given other people. I don't know. You know, it's hard to come up with something new every time. But as I was driving home from the doctor today, I heard myself on the radio uh, with a, an, on a Nanny Assis record. He's a wonderful percussionist, and I played fills in a solo on that thing, and it sounded pretty good, I must say. 
Oh, man, I'm sure everything you've done sounds as great as it is. We have been speaking here with the great Randy Brecker. Randy, you're an amazing musician. I want to thank you again for being on that first album of mine. That was really something else for me. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun kind of reliving those old sessions, and I'm just glad I'm here still doing it. What can I say? I love music. I'm glad you're here doing it as well. All right, we're going to listen now to that song that Randy played on back in 1994 that is my featured song on this interview. It's called Child's Play from 1994. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. 